You're listening to The Bob Zadek Show, a full hour of libertarian discussion with the smartest guests on radio. Live, spontaneous, and thoughtful. It's the show of ideas, not attitude. Now, your host, Bob Zadek. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Bob Zadek Show, the longest-running live libertarian talk radio show in all of radio. Every Sunday, we are the show of ideas, never once the show of attitude. Thank you so much for listening. Last Sunday, we discussed the future of cities as impacted uh, by the after-effects of the coronavirus, and those of you who recall the show will recall that it was my conclusion and the conclusion of my guest that the country we believe will enjoy in the intermediate future of five to seven years from now a long-range, very positive economic and social benefit from the after effects of the virus. Sounds counterintuitive. Listen to last Sunday's show and you will see the points we made, and why we reached that conclusion. This show, as it turns out, I think will be a continuation of that, in the sense that um, the lessons you will learn this morning will help us evaluate the behavior of our government, the performance of our government, when they are, when it is put to the test. And we can learn from the effects of the virus how well our government performed when, if you will, in a somewhat somewhat dramatic way, the chips were a bit down, the playbook wasn't all that clear, and elected officials, whether they are in the executive or the legislative branch and perhaps even the judicial branch, the elected or appointed officials were asked to if you will, do their job. For the most part, elected officials, uh, those in government, have, in my opinion, a pretty easy uh, fill-in-the-blanks, play-by-number-painting kind of job. Once in a while, you are actually required uh, to earn your keep. And this morning, we will examine, using the coronavirus as the test, how well our elected officials did uh, during the time they were asked to, to put it bluntly, do their job and do what they are elected to do. To help us understand how our elected officials performed, to help us build up our report card on how well our elected officials did what they were supposed to do, I'm delighted to welcome back to the show my dear friend, uh, frequent guest on the show, uh, Jeff Singer. Jeff is a practicing general surgeon uh, in Phoenix, Arizona. He is also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Cato Institute, sorry, uh, studying matters, among others, of health policy studies. Jeff has studied the government's performance in health policy areas for as long as I have known him. His information is as uh, as clear as clear can be. It is data-based. It is not driven by any motivation other than the truth. So when uh, when Jeff speaks, everybody ought to listen. Jeff, welcome to the show this morning. Thank you. It's such a kind introduction. I really appreciate that. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> Thank you, and well-deserved, Jeff. Thank you for being on the show. Now, Jeff, here's my question. Here's where we start this morning. All of us, whether we are participating in running a family, in running a small business, in running a big business, in running a city, when we have executive responsibilities, and Jeff, you and I simply as family members have, if you will, executive responsibilities even at that level, when we have to make decisions, we cannot be expected and we acknowledge we do not 
quote, know everything. Therefore, when I have to make a decision about my health, about my loved one's health, what do I do? I seek out professionals, and then I do my best to get opinions. Some opinions will be different than others. I sort them out using whatever skills I have uh, to sort out the best opinion, um, and I process the opinion of others, and then I, scary though it may seem, make a decision. And the decision that I make will affect my own life and the life of those people who are near and dear to me. Uh, if I'm in business, I affect the life of my employees, my customers, my creditors, and the people who own the business. Uh, if you're a mayor, you affect the life of the people who, are, who elected you. Now, with that examination of the function of executive decision-making, the executive branch of our government, whether they're the city, the state, or the federal level, was required to process information concerning the virus, but more than just health information. They were required to make decisions, decisions that affected large numbers of people. Therefore, given the importance of the decision, one would expect the decision-making process would be sound and thoughtful and follow the outlines that I have explained. I now ask you to comment on looking back, whether it's at the city, the state, or the federal level, what was right and what was wrong with the decision-making by the executive branch, because mostly it was the executive branch operating. The legislative branch basically ceded all power through executive power to the executive branch. So the legislatures were kind of passive in this process. We look mostly at the executive branch. Critique, if you will, uh, on the, the big level first, and then we can drill down. How did the executive branch, state, federal, local, perform? What did they do right in the process of making decisions, and what did they do wrong? Well, first, I think it's important to, to uh, you know, stipulate that um, as libertarians, we believe there is a leg legitimate function for government in certain situations, and when you deal with a public health emergency, that's a legit, it's a legitimate function of the government to, uh, you know, deal with the emergency and prosecute the, the crisis. So um, uh, that being said, the government, uh, in my opinion, uh, ha has failed us on, on virtually every level of government from federal all the way down to, to the local. So let's start with the beginning. One of the things you would, the, the government should do when, when there's an emergency like this facing the population is to give the people safe, good, solid, reliable information Understanding that we're learning as we're going, so the information needs to be constantly updated. Well, they didn't do that, so in the early goings of this thing, first we were being told uh, this is nothing to worry about. As recently as uh, late February, we were being told this is mild, it shouldn't affect anybody, go about your business. And we had that on every level, from the federal level, even down, for example, the mayor of New York City in March was telling people to go to Chinese New Year, get on the subway, go out to eat. So then they switched, turn around and say, wait a minute, this is really serious, everybody... Go inside. So they failed on just on the information level. Um, also, in the early goings, they were telling people, uh, don't wear a mask, it does no good. And then uh, all of a sudden, uh, in March, they say, actually, wear a mask. And then we just recently learned that we were told that was a so-called noble lie that uh, Dr. Fauci said. Um, well, we didn't want people to be uh, using up the limited number of masks that are necessary by the healthcare workers, so we told them not to wear a mask. Well, first of all, you didn't have to lie to us uh, because all you had to do was say, we have a limited number of masks for the healthcare workers. Until we get more, use something like a cloth covering or a kerchief, and then eventually everybody can get those other masks. So, And most people would have totally uh, understood and cooperated with that. But uh, when you lie now, and especially when you admit it, now it makes you wonder, well, what else are you lying to me about? How could I believe anything you're saying? So they weren't truthful on that. Uh, on the regulatory uh, scheme, they're, 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 most of the regulations are so, have made the government so um, rigid and sclerotic that it can't respond quickly to a crisis, which is 
one of the most important reasons to have a government is to respond to the, a crisis like this. So, for example, our FDA regulations resulted, I don't want to get too into the weeds, but basically resulted in the fact that while all the other countries in the world were developing tests, which is very important to be able to sort out who needs to be uh, isolated, who doesn't, uh, you know, and, and help you get in touch with contacts, etc. In the United States, the FDA basically granted a monopoly status to the CDC, which then produced a test uh, that turned out to be ineffective and flawed, and then by the end of February, suddenly had to play catch-up. So while other countries are already rapidly testing and getting the situation, at least under better control, getting to know more about the situation they were dealing with, we were just getting started. And then finally, at the end of February, beginning of March, the FDA uh, eventually relaxed enough of the regulations where it basically said to states, you know, you go ahead and uh, any test that, that your state decides wants to be allowed within its borders, you can go ahead, you don't need our approval anymore. And they, they also fast-tracked a, a lot of development tests. Same thing with drugs. Because of the, the rigid FDA uh, drug approval process, it takes on average about 12 years to bring a drug to market through the long, you know, uh, staged clinical trials process. All of a sudden, they fast-tracked remdesivir, which uh, showed promise uh, in reducing length of stay in the hospital. So that within about six weeks, it went all the way up to approval process, which also tells us they can do this if they want to. Um, so, but, but those things were standing away. Now, on the, on the state level, we had uh, state license, medical health care licensing laws, actually all occupational licensing laws, which made it difficult uh, for health care personnel to be able to move to other states to provide their services when they were needed. So many governors uh, basically gave temporary recognition to licenses held by healthcare practitioners in other states because they needed help. So they said, if you're a nurse, you're a doctor, and you're licensed in Texas, uh, we need you here in Massachusetts, so your license is, is okay. Come, come here. But, of course, that's temporary. But, so licensing laws obstructed the movement of, uh, of, of people to areas where they were needed. Uh, many st- over th- 35 states have certificate of need laws where you basically, if you wanted to add beds to your hospital or, or build a hospital or, or a surgery center or whatever, you have to get permission from a government committee that's usually made up mostly of your competitors to decide if if the state needs this, could you imagine if we had that for restaurants? So, you know, you want to open up, you have a great idea for a new kind of restaurant, but it has to go through the certificate of need board that is is staffed by all the other restaurants. And they say, well, you know, Bob, that's a really interesting idea for a restaurant, but we have plenty of that type, so we don't need it. Of course they're going to say that. So, so those things made it difficult in some states for hospitals to... Uh, make adjustments to the anticipated surge in patients. Um, uh, and, and in some states, the governors temporarily suspended it, and some they still haven't. But, for example, in my state of Arizona, we don't have a certificate of need law for that, so the hospitals immediately began saying, why don't we convert uh, this section of the hospital, which we usually use uh, you know, for, let's say, uh, cafeteria, or for, uh, why don't we take the, the recovery room that we use for post-op patients and make it bigger and convert it into additional ICU beds because we have that. Well, they could do that. They could add beds. They could put beds in parts of the hospital where there were no beds to be able to handle a larger load of patients. But in states with certificate need laws, the hospitals can't necessarily do that. They have to get permission. So, you know, these are the kinds of things. And then we have scope of practice laws uh, in, 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 on the state level where the states not only determine uh, licensed health care practitioners, but they decide the scope of practice of each uh, profession. So, for example, uh, uh, in some states they allow nurse practitioners to basically, you know, practice without supervision from a physician uh, to the extent to which they're trained. So a lot of, <laughs> a lot of excellent primary care is given by nurse practitioners, also physicians' assistants, but in other states they're not. In some states, nurse anesthetists, which are people who are trained in, in providing anesthesia, can't practice, provide anesthesia without an anesthesiologist present. Other states, they can go ahead and do that and just, uh, you know, if they need uh, someone with more training than them, uh, you know, it's up to them to decide if they want to have one on standby. <laughs> but but those kind of things have all stood in the way, and we learned that as we were going along. We said every time we were we were counting, countering these problems on the state level, governors were waiving all of these restrictions. And uh, of course, there are lessons in this, which is 
do you want to go back to putting those restrictions in place as soon as this crisis occurs and have the same flat-footed response? Or do you want to say, hmm, do we really need these restrictions? So, that, you know, there are opportunities as well as, you know, the sad lessons. Um, now, Jeff, then, when um, thing, oh, uh, Go ahead. Uh, just one, one question, if I may. Um, I, I notice when I have conversations with colleagues, with friends, when I listen uh, to pundits and experts speak, I find that I am far less interested in the opinion of the speaker, in the conclusion of the speaker. Um, that's just a statement. I am deeply interested in how they got there. So when governors and mayors made the lockdown decisions, they shared with us, with the public, their voters, they shared with us why they made the decision. So, and they they made the decision not because they were doctors or they were epidemiologists or they were anything. They were at the top. And as I said in my opening, their job, what they are hired to do is to receive information, to process it using their intellect uh, and the people who assist them. And after having processed the information from all of the experts they enlisted, reach a conclusion. That's what their deliverable is. Their deliverable to us, the voters, is their decision. Now, tell us, if you will, on the issue of the lockdowns, what was, as best you can tell, the decision-making process? What was the process by which Cuomo and others in the Northeast decided on the lockdowns? And what was wrong with their decision-making process? Well, first of all, let me say that the um, one of the advantages of our federal system is that uh, one size does not fit all. So the situations on the ground to determine the actions and the situations on the ground in the New York metropolitan area were not the same as, let's say, in South Dakota or California. So, um, uh, so I, it's it's not. I don't want to give a sort of a blanket opinion on decision making process because uh, rigid restrictions uh, on. On the, on the movement of people might make sense in one region of the country, depending on what's going on there, than in another. There's also you know, population density concerns, the demographics, age of the population, etc. So all those things should play into the decision. In my opinion, um, what, I, what I saw happening all too frequently was that uh, the executives basically deferred all the decision-making to public health officials. They basically said to the public health official, Tell me what needs to be done to eradicate this virus. And whatever the public health officials said needs to be done to eradicate the virus, they pretty much implemented. But what I have a problem with is that when you're an executive, you have to consider the trade-offs involved with any decision you make about anything. So um, the public health officials, and this is not criticizing them, they basically they are looking at one they're looking at it through one narrow lens. This is all about getting rid of the virus. They're not, they don't pretend to be experts on economics, on, on uh, sociology. Uh, so they're not considering the, you know, the, the economic consequences uh, or the social consequences of, of, the, of the interventions that they say you need to get rid of the virus. They're not considering the, the long-term consequences unintended uh, of some of those things. Um, so it's the job of an executive to not just consult the public health experts, but in my opinion, what you should be doing is after you hear what the public health experts tell you needs to be done to, let's say, get rid of the virus or get the virus under control, because you really, by the way, you can't get rid of the virus. This virus is part of our uh, ecosystem, so to speak. It's here to stay. It's, uh, you know, there's only one virus that affects humans that has ever been eradicated, and that's the smallpox virus. So even now when people are stopping getting immunizations because uh, they're afraid of got vaccines, uh, we're seeing that measles reemerge 20 years after we thought we'd never see a case again. Uh, same thing with polio, things like that. So the viruses never go away. We reach a point in our population where we have what, what the epidemiologists call herd immunity, where enough people uh, have immunity to it that the virus can't find enough hosts and vectors to spread around the population to any significant degree, so it, it's no longer a, a menace to the population. There will always be a case here or there, but not enough to, to be a, a huge social problem. 
and whether you get there through vaccinating the entire population or just enough of the population has gotten it that they developed immunity. And usually it's a combination of the two. In some cases, we never get a vaccine. We've been trying 20 years to get one for HIV. We don't have one for hepatitis C, for example. But anyway, so you're not going to get rid of the virus. But getting back, I digress, getting back to what I was saying originally is, uh, I think, after the executive consults the public health people, he should then consult people who are experts on economics, on the, the, the sort of the unseen uh, economic consequences of, of those decisions. Say, if, if we were to implement these decisions, how do you think that would affect things? Uh, and also discuss things with their political people, too. How do you think, their political experts, how do you think the public would be, would the public be willing to, to go along with some of these measures? What do you think the reaction would be? And you kind of mix this all together, and you, you also want, like, you know, uh, first best solution, second best solution, third best solution. And then you as the executive need to kind of weigh all these things into your ultimate decision. And what I think has happened all too often on all levels of government is that the executives have basically just limited it completely to the decision-making process of public health officials. And they themselves have admitted, I remember Dr. Fauci was asked by Senator Rand Paul, have you considered the economic consequences of some of these things? And he said, I'm not an economist. I don't pretend to be one. I'm, I'm a public health expert, and I'm giving you my public health insights. And so it's almost like if you, you, know, you have a roach problem in your house and you, you hire a pest control guy and say, uh, I want you to get rid of these I want these roaches eradicated. I don't care what you have to do to eradicate them. And then you, you go wait for a couple hours, come back, your house has been burned down to the ground, and you say, well, where's my house? He says, I got rid of your roaches. Isn't that what you told me you wanted to do? So it's the same thing. You need to, you know, you need to kind of balance the different, the different uh, uh, trade-offs, because every decision made in life involves trade-offs between, you know, pluses and minuses, and there's, there's relative risks. And, and, and unfortunately, a lot of that was left out, and that, in my opinion. So that now there's been a tremendous amount of suffering that was created that could have been avoided, particularly in certain regions of the country. Like I say, in certain areas, like in, in the New York metropolitan area, largely because of the population density, and as you know, there have been some studies showing that they've been actually able to trace a lot of the spread of the virus to the subway system, where people were actually encouraged by Mayor de Blasio not to wear masks, uh, where, the, where the subway workers were told not to wear masks because it may frighten the passengers. So, at least in the early goings of this thing, so there it became a much more critical situation than in other parts of the country. Uh, so I like the decentralization aspect. I also uh, uh, like, the, there's another thing we all, uh, your listeners, I'm sure, uh, completely understand, that the more decision-making uh, authority you place in the hands of the fewer number of people, the more you're creating incentives that actually it doesn't matter who the people are, there's a set of incentives that are not in our best interest. So, for example, uh, if, uh, if the governor decides he wants to lift the lockdown, what is seen when the lockdown is lifted is, of course, as more people are able to come out of quarantine, because basically our policy has consisted of quarantine the healthy, which I don't think has ever been done before, we usually quarantine the sick, but if they come out of quarantine, uh, more and more people, of course, are going to get exposed to this virus because, as I've said, the virus isn't going away. So there's going to be more. There're going to be more cases. So the case number is going to go up, and the press is going to say another thousand cases today, another thousand cases tomorrow. And of course, the governor is going to come under a lot of criticism, and it may affect his electoral election uh, prospects. So uh, whoever the governor is, I don't care what his ideology, uh, the incentives in place are for the governor to err on the side of overcaution. Meanwhile, what is not seen by the extended overcaution are how many uh, jobs are lost permanently, how many, how many life savings have, are, have evaporated, uh, how many people uh, didn't see the uh, doctors or get, or get checkups or, or, or treatment for non-emergency but serious problems that then become advanced enough that when they finally get a chance to get treatment, it's too late to, take, to, to have a good outcome. All those kind of things, how many, for example, uh, we've learned, according to the CDC, that immunizations are down in the United States 40% over the last two months. Parents are afraid to take their children to the pediatrician to get immunized, even though pediatricians are making all sorts of efforts 
to social distance where, you know, they're isolating. Uh, they some, In some places, they actually come down to you in your car and, and immunize your child in your car so you don't even have to be near other people. But parents are afraid that their children are going to catch the COVID-19 virus or that they will, even though the data shows that the young children, it's, it's almost immeasurable how many of them can get seriously ill from COVID-19. And, and, and young adults of parenting age are very low risk for getting any serious infection from COVID-19. So what they're doing by not getting their children immunized is actually they're su- subjecting them to risks of much more deadly viral illnesses like measles or, uh, uh, you know, polio, whooping cough, which is, you know, that's not a virus, but that, that could be very deadly, and they're not getting immunized against these things. Uh, whereas, uh, so we were... We, these are all parts of the trade-offs. So when these things Jeff, are we're going to get into um, how many people didn't get immunized Jeff. were it not for the extended lockdown. We do see how many cases go up. So the incentive is is locked in place where the executive is going to uh, err on the side of keeping things locked down longer than necessary, no matter who that person is. We are reading. We are reading a lot about um, number of cases, um, new cases, and there's always an exclamation point at when the media reports that. Um, so we'll get into that in a moment. That That's an example, I think, but Jeff, I'd like your opinion, of the kind of information you, co- you sort of mentioned it earlier. That's exactly the kind of information that creates excitement and anxiety in the public, but it's kind of irrelevant to the discussion. And you mentioned a very important concept that I want to explore in a moment, which is the trade-offs, that when uh, an executive, a mayor or a governor makes a decision based solely upon health considerations, it's turning over executive power to a subordinate official, some official in the health department. Well, the government or the the executive is, and this is really important to me, is one notch above the health department. He is at the top of the pyramid with a series of departments and advisors reporting to him. And his job is the decision to take health department input economist input, uh, political input, sociological input, and do that last step is to right. process all of it and make a decision that may, that may be adverse to the economics, but advantageous to the health or vice versa. But that's the hard stuff. That's a decision. It's an abdication, Jeff, in my opinion, when a governor simply says, well, it's the health department's call. Don't yell at me. I'm doing what my health advisor says. Right. Well, in doing they, that, the is, government is I'm making... I'm going by the science. That's what they say. I'm going by the science. It sounds, of course, very uh, enlightened to say that. But what they're really saying is I'm basically abdicating all executive decisions to one aspect of the dealing with the issue, which is the public health people. So in this regard, to paraphrase, there's an old saying, patriotism is the uh, last refuge of scoundrels. Well, hiding behind, quote, science, close quote, is the last refuge of elected officials. They get to get a pass. They get to abdicate the decision making and saying, Fauzi or or Bix or some scientist told me what to do, and I am simply doing it. Well, the governor or the mayor is be- or the president is being obedient but not making a decision. And the point is that this is the one chance when an executive was required to gulp, make a decision, and process information, and make a decision where there was a political danger, but make a decision that's good for all. Now, Jeff... Uh, I want to explore something which you have been so helpful in having me understand, which is you mentioned earlier the issue of trade-off, that when one makes a decision to eliminate elective 
surgery, and we're going to discuss elective surgery specifically because, of course, you're a general surgeon and you know that stuff, but also as a scholar, you are aware of the trade-offs. When we make a decision uh, to uh, eliminate all elective surgery, basically saying you cannot use any healthcare facility, I'm exaggerating a little bit, unless it's virus COVID related. There there were profound long-term health as well as economic damage. So you have done a lot of studies into this. Help us understand, and the reason I would like you to do it is you made passing reference to the Unseen, the the word that Frederick Bastiat has taught us back in the 1850s about there are consequences that people don't see, but they are profound. And they the unseen consequences never get very much attention, but they are often more significant than the seen consequences. So help us understand, Jeff, uh, in somewhat summary fashion, uh, what were the unseen adverse health consequences of basically denying health care to the entire country other than COVID-related? Okay, first I want to point out that this goes back to the idea of putting all decisions in, in you know, one-size-fits-all decisions in the hands of a few people. Um, prior to this pandemic, uh, every few years, we get warnings. The uh, CDC warns uh, local regions that there's going to be a, a expe- worse than usual flu season. And the hospitals uh, need to be prepared in case they have an overload of patients. So normally what happens is on a, on a hospital-by-hospital basis, the hospitals are in touch with us on a medical staff, uh, and they say things like, for the next two months, we're going to ask you to be much more frugal in the, in the patients you bring in because we, we need the beds. Uh, or sometimes I would schedule a surgery and get a phone call from the, the hospital chief medical officer and say, how important is it that this man have the surgery on Wednesday? Because we're down to two beds. Is there a way you could postpone it a couple of weeks until we have more beds? And, of course, we handle these things. That's what we do. But uh, this, the, entire, the plan from the beginning was to, quote, flatten the curve, which means since it's a brand-new virus and there was no uh, immunity to it, we didn't want the hospital system to get overwhelmed and be unable to take care of anybody. So the whole idea originally, which is very reasonable and, you know, things we deal with all the time, is to take steps to make sure the hospitals have enough capacity to handle everybody. Well, so in many states, what... Uh, virtually every state, the governors decided, in this case, instead of the hospitals working it out with their medical staff on a local basis, they put in place blanket bans on all elective surgery. Now, elective doesn't mean like getting a facelift. It, elective means not emergency. It means it doesn't have to be done this minute. If you have a perforated ulcer, that's not elective. You have to go to surgery right now. But you could have something that could be very serious, very immobilizing, uh, but it, it could be scheduled you know, in a, more, in a more convenient way, like over the next few weeks or even a couple of months, and that's considered elective. You can elect when to have it. And even among electives, there are more urgent electives and less urgent electives. So, for example, if you're an elderly person living alone and you have really bad cataracts and you're really having trouble seeing, that's a, cataract surgery is elective, but it might be more urgent for that person who could fall and break a hip, and that could be their final event that does them in, then it could be for a person who has milder cataracts and has a, has, doesn't live alone and has more mobility. So when the governors banned elective surgery, all of these people were no longer able to get anything done. Elective consider, it also includes things like cardiac catheterizations. There are emergency cardiac catheterizations when you show up with a suspected heart attack going on and they, they diagnose it and, and maybe could treat it with a stent. But there are other situations where doctors don't like what they're seeing and you need to have a catheterization because you might have basically a ticking time bomb going on in there, and that's elective. That gets scheduled. Well, those things were not happening. There's colonoscopies for screening for colon cancer. There's uh, a whole lot of people who are on, have, are on numerous medications to control chronic illnesses like you know, heart disease or COPD who are sub- really need to do regular check-ins with their doctor to see if they need adjustments in their medications because it's, they're, you know, it's kind of very, they're very fragile. And they were told during this spell to uh, not go to the doctor because you can catch COVID. 
So what, what we found is, well, first of all, in my state of Arizona, we had hospital, hospitals were about 40% of capacity as a result of this because n nothing was allowed into the hospital that wasn't emergency. Um, so there were emergency surgeries going on, but, but only emergency surgeries. The hospitals were actually furloughing or laying off doctors and nurses. Um, so, uh, but, but what's not seen is how many people will end up presenting with advanced stage 3 or stage 4 cancers that could have been avoided had they gotten taken care of sooner. How many people are suffering immobilized and pain from they were waiting for, for their now canceled hip operation who ends up developing a blood clot and then a pulmonary embolism and die. I mean, these are things we will never know, actually, because there's no way to be able to get that information, but this is the unseen. And, and uh, gradually, in my state, elective surgery was permitted once again starting May 1st. And one of the reasons why the hospitals are now at about 80 to 85% capacity statewide is because all those patients are getting back into the hospital again. But even there, now the hospitals are in touch with us daily. I get messages from, from, the, from the medical directors of the hospitals that I go to, and they tell us, uh, you know, if our hospital gets much busier, we may be contacting you and asking you to back off on your admissions for a while. But you notice how when it's done on the local level with local knowledge, the back off may only be for a week or two, and it may only affect one or two of the hospitals in the hospital system as opposed to all of them in the state. In my state, we had hospitals in parts of the state where there were almost no cases of COVID, in very rural areas of the state, and they were, they were not, there's no elective surgery allowed in the state. So people in those areas weren't, were also going without care. So that, that's just the elective surgery angle. There's a whole lot of other unseen things that, like I talked about a little bit earlier regarding immunizations. Um, and, uh, and people to this day, even as states are opening up, are still afraid because of the daily drumbeat in the news about more cases, more cases. We've got another 1,000 cases today. Another so that's keeping people afraid to go to the doctors and to go to hospitals. Uh, recent reports are showing that emergency room visits are way down uh, compared to this time in the previous years for people who would be normally coming in with things like chest pain or shortness of breath or exacerbations of uh, COPD, things like that. In other words, non-COVID medical emergency visits are dramatically down. Is that because people are afraid to go to the emergency room and they're, maybe they're dying at home from other things uh, because it didn't get treated? So these are things that need to be uh, taken into consideration, which is why I uh, argue that we should so sometimes you need to do one-size-fits-all policies that affect the whole state or the whole county or whatever. But that should be kept down to the absolute minimum only when absolutely necessary. And the decision-making should be as much as possible left to local actors based upon local knowledge who have the flexibility to more rapidly adjust to changes that develop in, uh, in local areas. So, you know, if you, if you have to... If you have an area of the state which, which is uh, ha not having any uh, COVID-19 problem, uh, it's it, normally with a statewide policy to try to get the statewide policy lifted is like turning around a battleship. Whereas if, if these kind of decisions are uh, devolved as much as possible to local actors, and the role of the government here is to give those local actors the most accurate and up-to-the-minute information as possible so they can make the best decision. That's very important. It's more important than telling them what to do. And, Jeff, the examples you have indicated where governors, mostly governors, who forbid or which forbid uh, elective surgery and elective was misunderstood perhaps by the governors, that's the ultimate scary case of, and a phrase, Jeff, you have heard and you have spoken very often, where the government, elected officials, interject themselves into one of the most intimate of relationships between patient and health care provider. The governor steps in and says, even though the patient needs the procedure and even though the doctor 
the doctor's best medical judgment is this patient must have the procedure. The government, for the wrong reason, simply because of the one-size-fits-all, the government invites themselves into the consulting room and says, no, the greater good in the country dictates that that decision by the physician will be overruled. It's, it's inviting itself, the government, into one of the most intimate and fiduciary relationships that exist in the world, healthcare provider and patient. And that is, of course, that first came about with the discussion, maybe our first show, Jeff, we did maybe 10 years ago on Obamacare, when the fear was it was the government inviting itself into the uh, decision-making process. This is a real-life example of what that looks like when the government, for, for the wrong reasons, um, interferes with the delivery of appropriate health care services. Yeah, it's not just unique to the COVID-19 pandemic. How about the opioid situation? We had the government, states around the country, passing these uh, one-size-fits-all uh, prescription guidelines and dosage guidelines, the doctors prescribing opioids to patients in pain, and then they all, all the states set up these uh, prescription drug monitoring programs, which are surveillance boards, and if they find doctors deviating from what the state thinks is the right dosage or uh, a number of pills that they're prescribing to patients, they get a visit from law enforcement, and uh, a lot of this was based upon Again, CDC guidelines, which the CDC has subsequently said, you know, those were just guidelines, and, and you're, you're taking them to be gospel, and they're not. And, and, of course, they also come under a lot of criticism from experts regarding, who are experts on pain management and, and addiction management. But that doesn't matter. The government has decided, you know, you can only prescribe this many pain pills for this patient uh, in this circumstance, and you have to get basically permission from people who are government officials if you want to maybe give your patient a, a larger dose or a, a greater number. So it's, it's, not, it's not unique uh, to, the, to the pandemic. It's, it's just been a, a pernicious uh, trend that's been going on for, for quite some time with the government intruding itself into the practice of medicine. Here's another example. We, we learned the other day this good news uh, that it looks like the steroid dexamethasone might be very effective in, in rescuing seriously critically ill people who are having it's called a cytokine storm. It's, it's a, 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 we believe in many cases that people who die from COVID-19, they're not dying from the virus per se. They're dying from uh, an overimmune, a hyperactive immune response to the virus that is so uh, huge and aggressive that it actually starts destroying your own body, and that's what you end up dying from, the complications there. You have multi-organ system failure from the immune response. So we've known for years, and I know a lot of my colleagues who are treating these patients, when, when the patients get to that point, just, just intuitively they've, they've said, why don't we just give them some steroids and see if that helps, because steroids are known, of course, to suppress the immune response. So whether it's dexamethasone or methylprednisolone or hydrocortisone, you, get, you can pick your steroid that you want, but they're basically all acting the same way. Dexamethasone is very powerful and inexpensive and been around for decades. So, uh, but using it in that situation is considered an off-label use. Off-label meaning the FDA approved it, but not for that particular thing. Under current regulations, once the FDA approves it, you could use it for anything your clinical judgment uh, tells you to use it for. But if you use it for something that was not, it was not initially approved for, then that's called off-label use because that wasn't allowed to be uh, a usage put on the label. So we just recently learned uh, from researchers in the U.K. that it may reduce uh, deaths by up to a third of people who are in this kind of critical condition, um, which validates what a lot of doctors kind of intuitively have been thinking. Well, meanwhile, uh, we all are familiar with this in, in, in mid-March, uh, there are a lot of doctors who in, intuitively have been prescribing hydroxychloroquine uh, or chloroquine, both of which are uh, used uh, as anti-malarials, but they're more commonly used to, to treat people with collagen vascular diseases like uh, uh, connective tissue diseases like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus for decades, okay? So, uh, and I'm not passing judgment on whether that works. Initially, there was a lot of good reason uh, 
for the clinicians to think it might help. In vitro studies suggested it might help, and there were anecdotal reports. Unfortunately, President Trump decides to trumpet that this is the game changer. When that happened, that started a whole firestorm in the press. Uh, the uh, uh, people, and a lot of it, I'm sure, was was you know politically motivated and partisan motivated because if Trump is for it, it can't be good. Um, and then in, in reaction to that, the, the FDA first said, we want to point out that we don't have convincing evidence on this, and it is, an off, it is not approved for use in this, which first was misinterpreted by the press as meaning it's not approved because uh, they didn't understand the difference between off-label and, and label use. And, uh, and then um, many governors reacted by actually, same thing as with opioids. They said you cannot use hydroxychloroquine to treat uh, COVID-19 patients, except under certain special circumstances that we uh, define. Um, in the meantime, uh, probably under pressure from the executive branch, the FDA suddenly said, we're giving emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine and, and ended up purchasing 63 million doses of hydroxychloroquine for the national stockpile, emergency stockpile. And this was also, this got, this took place on several state levels too, particularly states that were sympathetic to Trump. Uh, so Governor DeSantis of Florida oh bought a million doses of hydroxychloroquine, none of which have been used. Right, so meanwhile, data starts coming in on that one. And so far, at this point, there's no convincing evidence from bigger studies. It's not been, we still haven't any randomized controlled studies, but I, I think that, you know, I have to be honest and say I can't, I'm not convinced that it helps. I haven't seen anything that convinces me. I'm aware of the anecdotal reports. So if a patient asked me, what, would, what do you think, I would say I have no, I'm not convinced that it does any good. But that's not the point. The point is that, uh, so now the, the FDA about a week ago, realizing that, that there's no convincing evidence, terminated its emergency use authorization. And now we're stuck with 63 million doses of unused hydroxychloroquine that we paid for in a national stockpile and millions of doses in different state stockpiles. And this is a difference between dexamethasone, which the government had nothing to do with. This was just doctors using their judgment, sharing information, engaging in clinical trials, uh, and then sharing their information. These are devoid of any government interference and coming to the conclusion, you know, dexamethasone in certain situations could be very helpful. And in the case of hydroxychloroquine, government may be injecting itself into it, not giving doctors and patients a chance to kind of find out if this is good or not good. And so now we have a situation where we got all this waste, which is totally avoidable. It's just kind all, of all it's political, and it was all just takes a position on government involvement in it. It's all political, and there was very little medical input from all of it. That's the scary part. Now, Jeff, we're, we're, we're running out of time, and there you had mentioned an important word, and even though we don't have much time left, you had mentioned the trade-off between the economic um, and the health considerations. And I'd like to frame up the issue. We only have a few minutes uh, with a everyday example that our audience will understand. Uh, we are told, um, uh, uh, I'll start with Governor Cuomo saying, even one life is invaluable, saying that we will sacrifice any degree of economic loss to save even one life. An utterly absurd concept, because government, every minute of every day, uh, government at every level, makes a decision to sacrifice an American life for a greater good. Think, for example, of sending troops into combat. We have decided to kill off a certain number of young male and female Americans because it's good for the country. That's not a heartless decision. Hopefully that's a rational decision. We make a decision to allow, to permit driving in this country, even though driving kills 55,000 Americans uh, every year. So we make a decision, the loss of 55,000 lives, while regrettable, we will still permit driving because the economic benefit outweighs the loss of 55,000 lives. So, uh, Jeff, comment on uh, these. We have only a few minutes on how one ought to make a decision um, 
about lost lives and use the COVID virus. We have only a minute or two left. Uh, how the decision that government can make might cost us, might cost us several, a few, maybe many American lives, but how the economic considerations, if they were given, would mitigate in favor of less lockdown and less closing of the economy. We have about a minute left, Jeff, a minute and a half. Okay, well, first of all, you know, uh, decisions like this, uh, as much as possible, need to be made on the individual level because different people are willing to accept this at different risks. For example, tobacco smokers know that they're risking their life smoking tobacco, but they made a decision that the pleasure they're getting from tobacco uh, outweighs the, the health considerations. They're willing to take their chances. Now, in certain situations, for example, if I'm contagious and I could infect a lot of other people around me, then it's not just my decision because I'm, I'm, I'm obviously jeopardizing the life and rights of my neighbors. So that's why I'm saying there is a legitimate role uh, for the government to play here because these are externalities and to prevent me from hurting my neighbor. So it's not like everything has to be just up to me. As long as I'm okay with it, uh, it doesn't matter to me if you catch it. So there's a role there. But still, that role has to be as narrowly defined as possible. And decisions made outside of the individual realm have to be um, – there has to be a compelling reason for that to be made, and it has to be a time limit set on it. Uh, and it should really only in, uh, deal with you, your ability to affect uh, the, the, the life and safety of others outside of you. Because um, otherwise, everything we make every day involves these kind of trade-offs. Uh, some people scuba dive, some people ski, some people skydive. Uh, some people, you know, drive. You could argue that raising the speed limit from 55 to 70, as was done in California, or 75 in Arizona, well, that... that caused an increase in deaths from automobile accidents. But it was, and, and you don't have to drive up to the speed limit. That's the limit. You could drive below it if you want. These are all decisions we make. And as, as many decisions... Jeff, I'm going to have to interrupt you. Okay. Uh, I do want to allow time to give you my heartfelt thanks for sharing your wisdom for the past hour. Uh, Everybody, please follow Jeff's writing at Cato. He is a scholar, he is a brilliant surgeon, and he knows this stuff cold. He is really the truth and the source of all information on what government is doing with the virus. So, Jeff, thanks for sharing what you know with us and with our friends out there uh, who are listeners to the show. Bob Zadig saying thanks to Jeff and so long for Thank now. You. Thanks, Bob.